Welcome everyone to Huddle Up with Gus, where we talk to our guests about how sports shape their life. I'm your host, Gus Farratt, 15-year NFL quarterback, and I'm joined by my longtime friend and co-host, Dave Hager. You can now find us under the big top with the Sports Circus and Ringmaster Sal. Look for us on AMPTV, AAMPTV.com. Thanks, everyone, for joining us another episode of Follow Up with Gus. Uh, Dave, how are you doing today? Good. Excited about our guest. Today. I am excited yeah. about our guest. Um, uh, ro- how do you say football royalty? Uh, Jay Paterna. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's right. football royalty. Yeah, I mean, right. you think about the name and, and everything at Penn State and how far back it goes and you know, what an outstanding job um, that his family his father has done at Penn State and, and uh, carrying on a tradition and I know he loves the game he loves the college and I don't know I don't know if, if uh, he's ever left Penn State or State College I believe he's a lifer but we'll, we'll find out <laughs> we'll find out yeah. so Jay it's so great to have you on Huddle Up with Gus we appreciate you joining us on the show today oh, great to be here um, so where we always start is we kind of go back to when you were a kid and I think this question is anyone can answer, but it's always about what was that first time or where was that first moment in your life that you remember where you fell in love with sports? Gee, I don't know. You know, when I was a kid, obviously, being around Penn State football, that, you know, I wasn't at practice or anything like that, but I knew that my dad was involved in something. And I would start, uh, when I was very young, I'd get up early in the morning and I'd go into his den and he'd be in there looking at film and I started to, you know, Generally, I was playing with my little matchbox and cars and Hot Wheels on the floor of his den. But, you know, as I got older, I started to watch, look over his shoulder and go, what exactly is he doing? And this is back in the days when it was film. Um, and then, you know, you just kind of pick up the sport from being around it and just always loved, loved just the idea of football and everything about it and all the, all the stuff that comes with it. So what other sports? I mean, obviously, football's in your blood. It was in my blood. It was connected to our families but what other sports um did you grow up playing or enjoy um watching um what was i good at not many <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no I, baseball to this day I still love baseball um there's just something about it you know the it, you know the good thing about baseball it kind of gives you time to digest what's going on between pitches and stuff um basketball i played a little bit here and there um i ski bike all kinds of stuff but but football and baseball would probably be the two biggest ones. Love hockey. You know, Penn State's got a great hockey program. And, and Guy Godowski's a coach here who's, who's a neighbor and a friend. So, you know, I, I, I just love competition. And now I've got uh, two kids. Two of my kids are playing college lacrosse. I've got three. There are three younger siblings who are all playing lacrosse. So it's, you know, it's just it's whatever's got a ball, bat, puck, stick, you name it, I'll watch it. So, Jay, when you were growing up in State College, was it like a bunch of neighborhood kids that would always, you know, you'd go and do a pickup game of football, play wiffle ball, something like that? Was it like the neighborhood crew that played with each other? Yes, and that's exactly what it should be. (laughs) I still go nuts because, 
you know, my kids in sports, like, well, practice is here. And then well, what time's practice? I don't know. Didn't they tell you? I'm like, no, you have to tell me. Um, but, you know, there was, there, was a, there was a high school football coach in Shaker Heights, Ohio, years ago. And he and I were talking about this. And he said, you know, they were having trouble developing leadership on their, on their football team. And I said, what do you think that is? He said, you know, from the time these kids are born um, and get into sports, practice is planned by an adult. The teams are split up by adults. Uh, we're going to do this for five minutes, do that for five. So everything they do is organized by adults. And when you guys grew up, when I grew up, it was, hey, go call one guy and then go to his house and then go to four or five other guys' houses with football or basketball or with football, whatever you got. And we're going to split into teams and we're going to play and we had to organize it. So you, you were kind of forced to being in charge of it. So, yeah, you know, I, there was a park right in our backyard. So we were constantly down there all the time. And, you know, different time, obviously. But, you know, uh, my mom had a whistle. She'd blow about 10 minutes before dinner time. And if you didn't get home and sit down before dinner, you were in big trouble. But other than that, it's like, get out of the house and go play sports. And uh, we'll see you when you get back for dinner. Yeah, so many of our guests talk about that, is, and and that's how we grew up. Is is you go from one guy's house to the next, and whatever you had, you know, whatever the sport of the day was, we all played it. And we didn't have parents, we didn't have referees, we didn't have people telling you what to do, what the rules were, and all that. You just made them up as you went, and and the little ones had to keep up, and the big ones had to kind of keep control. And I, I think you're right. That's kind of how leadership started for a lot of people that played sports back in the day. Well, well I remember too with the whistle. You'd go when you'd hear it. You'd go, damn! Even though it meant dinner was coming, you had to stop. Yeah, and then you'd be like, all right, we're back here in an hour. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. And you go home, and, and if your mom said you got to help me clean up the dishes after, it's like, mom, I got a game. You know, but, yeah. you know it's different times. Right, it is. It definitely is different times. Um, and so, one of the questions I have for you: You're right in the middle of the state. You love a lot of sports. So, are you more of an East? Eastern Pennsylvania guy or Western Pennsylvania guy? This is a loaded question. <laughs> uh, it's a loaded question. It is. Uh, so, you know, in, after coaching so many years um, and having teammates, you know, you got to know guys that played on so many different teams. So I really, I grew up a Cowboys fan, which I know is heresy in Western Pennsylvania from the 1970s, but it was because of Roger Staubach. Right. Roger Staubach was a guy I idolized. And, and and rightfully so, good dude. Um, and Gil Brandt, who was the GM of the Cowboys or head of scouting, would always come up to scout guys at Penn State. And he would always send my brothers and I stuff, including Dallas Cowboy cheerleader posters. So what team would you <laughs> You know, I mean, can you blame us? But, no, as I got older and got to know more guys around the league and stuff, I don't really have a favorite team per se. Um, you know, Tom Bradley's coaching with the Steelers now, who I'm close to. So I've been out of Steelers games, so I root for them. My wife's in Pittsburgh, and if I want to keep the household happy, I root for the Steelers. Um, <laughs> happy wife, happy life. You know how that goes. We've um, heard that before. So, you know, so the, 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 it's kind of that way. Um, I kind of I was a Flyers fan, um, and that really hasn't changed. Um, I know that's heresy in Western PA, but you guys got a lot of cups, so you can, you can, you guys are doing all right. Yeah. The Flyers need as much help as they can get. Yeah. But the baseball, um, uh, pirates, but the team I really follow the most, the Red Sox. Um, cause when I coached at the university of Connecticut for a year in, in summers, I would listen to games on the radio at night while I was doing work or whatever. 
And then I went to Fenway and just fell in love with the whole environment. That was back in 1993, 94. Yeah, it's just just such a great experience. Dave and I love listening to the games on the radio. Um, Sometimes the games are hard to watch. But uh, it's something about when you have a really good announcer and, yeah. and, and, and calling the game and saying what's happening, it, it just makes it so much better. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in Arizona, and we could get on AM, you could still get Dodger games, even though I was in Tucson. And that was the – even I wasn't even a Dodgers fan, but there's nothing, you know, more relaxing than having that in the background. Right. Vin Scully calling the game, oh. you know, it's, it was great. That was my dad. Yeah, one of the best things about getting satellite radio is I started listening to some Vin Scully, you know, few year, you know, before he retired, and uh, and part of that was, you know, he was doing games when they were still in Brooklyn, right. and my dad grew up in Brooklyn. My dad was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. In fact, when he was a kid, he was an usher at Ebbs Field, and the Dodgers left Brooklyn. He stopped. He stopped watching baseball together. He was so mad. Never got over it. <laughs> right. So when um, you make that transition into high school, did you go to State College High School? What high school did yeah, you go to? State College High School. That's a pretty good. Every yeah, year they're pretty competitive in that area. Yeah, they've done, they've done a nice job. We're really the biggest high school within 70, 80 miles, and um, so we should be. Um, but we're in that league and with the Harrisburg teams uh, in the mid-pen league. So it's a good, tough, competitive league, um, and they've done a good job. The, the coach there has done a nice job. Uh, Matt Lintel, whose dad was also the coach here at one time, and uh, but they they're always competitive. Did you play um, multiple sports in high school? No, I was, I've got into football. I did some track until um, I realized I wasn't fast and couldn't jump and couldn't throw a shot put. So I realized that wasn't that was not going to be a future for me. Um, but football was my main thing, and uh, played football there. And then I walked on at Penn State and played there, and really had a great time. And I. And, I knew I wasn't going to be the starting quarterback at Penn State anytime soon, unless there was an absolute tragedy on a Saturday afternoon. Um, but I knew I wanted to coach, so and that was really the reason I stayed in it. So, would your dad go to your games in high school? Yeah, he well, he got to one or two of them, um, partly because you know they were on the road on Friday nights, right. or he was with the team on Friday nights. And uh, the one game I remember coming to was we were playing. Uh, Punxsutawney High School, and we were tied, and I was gonna—I was getting sacked, and I thought, you know what? If I throw this ball away, it'll stop the clock, and it'll be third down and seven rather than third down and fifteen. So as I throw the ball away, I'm getting kind of wrestled to the ground. It hits off the other kid's knee brace, goes straight up in the air, and Punxsutawney picks it off, <laughs> and they win the game ten-seven. Oh. And I, I went home so, and my dad said, "Look, you had the right idea." You know, it's a fluke thing. You know, if I was grading you, I would say you were thinking the right thing. Um, but it just didn't work out. He said, that's the way life goes. And it was a learning lesson. I thought he was going to kill me while I got home. <laughs> but no, he was. He took that approach. And, you know, it's funny. Years later, when I was coaching quarterbacks, that's how I would – look, you did everything you could control, and that's the only thing I can grade you on. I tried to get away that one year when I was playing with the Bengals and threw it left-handed, and the coach was like, yeah, that excuse really doesn't work because – <laughs> you threw left hand and it got picked off. I still I remember that. You remember that play? Was it goal line? It no, no, we were we were just like on the thirty going oh, in. I was oh, getting okay. tackled, and right when I got, yeah. I was throwing it, and I can't remember. I think a D lineman picked it off, but um, 
there are things you can't control, and there's definitely things in the game that you can't control. I love when, like, so I'll give you an example. Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's a good friend of the show and a good friend of mine, last week the Dolphins are playing the Jets. They get the ball on a half-yard line coming out, and they try to sneak the ball out, but Ryan gets tackled in the end zone basically, right, because you're already snapping it behind the goal line, and, it, and it's a safety. And so the, the media wrote how Ryan Fitzpatrick gave up a safety against the, <laughs> the Jets, and I'm like, that's not how it goes. That's not what you write. I mean, that was just a play that was called, and he's doing his job, and, you know, because he didn't get out, there's just things you can control and you can't. Yeah, um, no question. Jay, was there ever a thought in your head of going somewhere other than Penn State when you were in high school? Uh, well, no, I, I walked on Penn State, and about two years in, I think it was, I talked to Dick McPherson up at Syracuse about transferring because I was interested in maybe communications. And, you know, so I went up and visited with them and just, just decided to stay at Penn State. And then when I got out of college, I went to the University of Virginia to coach for three years, and then I was at uh, – uh, University of Connecticut, and then James Madison University before I came back to Penn State in 95, and then I was at Penn State the rest of my career uh, until 2011. Who was the coach of Virginia when you went there? George Welsh. George Welsh, George, okay. I mean, I was fortunate. I coached for two Hall of Fame coaches, George Welsh, obviously, and Joe Paterno, and um, learned great things from him. George is really one of the underrated coaches in the history of college football simply because of where he won. I mean, he went to Navy and took them to bowls and things and, and really turned that around. And then he went to Virginia where they had no football success whatsoever. And uh, I think in the last 50 years, they've had 20 or 21 winning seasons and 16 of them were with him. Um, so, I mean, he really did some great things there. Yeah, Virginia is a tough place to win. Um, you just don't get the same athletes as a lot of the other schools in that division get. Um, so you, you went on to coach, and you always coach quarterbacks? No, I've coached, let's see, uh, as a GA, I did defensive backs, offensive line, and then I coached wide receivers and tight ends in Connecticut and coached quarterbacks. Jeez, oh man, this is like ancient history. Quarterbacks at James Madison um, University, and then um, coached tight ends, and then was recruiting coordinator at Penn State, and then took on the quarterbacks in like 2000. And was also kind of co-coordinator there, coordinated pass game and call and plays until uh, 2011. UConn is a school that started to get a little momentum on the national scene, and it kind of died out now. A little but, bit, yeah. You know, there was a few years, though, that UConn was definitely an up-and-coming. My, my college center is now the defensive coordinator at UConn, Lou Spanos. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Lou, Lou's, Lou's a good guy. You know, you're in a tough spot because, you know, now they were in that conference, now they're going to get out of it because, unfortunately, the basketball really runs the roost up there, and, and they didn't like being in that conference anymore, so they got themselves out of the Big East, but it's like, where are you going to do your football? And people don't realize football is football makes a lot more money than basketball does, but, you know. Right. So how do you think all the positions that you coached, and then when you finally settle in on quarterbacks, how do you think all that helped you coach the quarterbacks a little differently? Well, I think the most important thing, and you would know this uh, from playing, is you know you got to try and get your mind inside what they're trying to do. You know, if you know that you know in quarters coverage that that safety's key in number two, uh, if he goes vertical or you know whatever the case may be. So having coached other positions in terms, especially on the defensive side where I started out, um, really helps you design the way you're going to attack people, understanding. 
So that helped. Um, and then the year I spent with the offensive line um, at UVA was great because um, uh, you might remember name Gary Tranquil was the coach at, head yeah. coach at UVA one time and the offense coordinator, a bunch of different places. One of the first first years down in Virginia, we're all sitting there, a bunch of GAs, all right out of college, all think we know everything, and we're drawing up all these pass plays. And, hey, this is the greatest pass in the red zone, this pass, that pass. And Gary Tranquil just sat there, and he goes, oh, that's all great, but how are you going to protect it? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you can't get that pass off unless you can protect your quarterback. And and he started, he taught us, and then when I worked in the offensive line, everything I did as a quarterback coach started with how do we protect this? So, you you know, learning defense, learn the offensive line, and then coaching tight ends. You know, tight ends are involved in run, run blocking, pass blocking, as well as the pass game. So, I learned all those other aspects before I really started to coach quarterback. So I think that was a real benefit. Yeah, I think it's so important. Uh, my son is coaching at William & Mary now. He's in his senior year, um, and he's coaching the quarterbacks. And I told him that you got to learn what the linemen are doing. That's the most important because you got to learn, as a quarterback's coach, you have to learn every aspect, what the defense is doing, what the line's doing. You have to understand all their calls. You have to understand what everybody's doing because you're the leader, the ultimate leader of the team. And if you don't know what's going on, you, you're not able to put anybody else in the right position or tell them what to do unless you know exactly what to do. And, and so he, he's really taking it to heart. And he said, it, Dad, by far, it's, it's the hardest thing to learn is all, the linemen, all their calls. He said, because every run we have, they have a different call. And then every defense gives them another call. So you're right. I mean, learning the line is probably one of the hardest parts of the game. No question. That's great advice you gave him because it, it's – you know, when that quarterback steps in the huddle, well, you know, don't even be starting the fact that so many teams don't huddle anymore because you know, there's, I think there's a balance somewhere. Or never take um, a snap under center. Yeah. Oh, don't. The ne- oh, the, when I see teams that cannot run a damn quarterback sneak on a third down and six inches and they're snapping a guy five yards deep, I want to pull my hair out. Every, I'm like, how hard is it to teach that? Welcome to the world of the Steelers. I mean, they, that, they never go under center anymore. They won't go under center. And, and Roethlisberger weighs like 260, 6'5", and he hasn't had a quarterback sneak in about seven years or something. But, yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. But, but, you know, a guy, a guy that can – Guy that can get in the huddle, or certainly as a quarterback who can sit there and talk with the offensive line, um, they earn the respect of those offensive linemen too, as well, because they know he respects what they're doing. No, and it, it is really important. I had some of the best centers that you could ever play with. I had Matt Burke, uh, Tommy Nalen at the Broncos. I mean, those guys made all the calls. It's like, hey, it's pretty easy for me. I don't have to call anything out. They just did all the work. It was actually pretty nice. <laughs> well, you know, it's. Now it's, you know, they're coming up every play and they're calling out the middle linebacker. And, you know, you're telling the defensive, you're basically telling defense where you're setting your protection, where you're setting your run blocking. It's like, you know, but it's part of the game. Start your day sunny side up at the Weston Bonaventure Hotel and Suites and enjoy breakfast for two on us. No matter how you plan to spend your trip to Los Angeles, start every day with a hearty meal to kickstart your morning. Enjoy breakfast for two on us each day you stay. For reservations, be sure that promo code S4B appears in the promo code box when making your online reservation at marriott.com backslash LAXBW or call 1-800-228-9290 and ask for promotional code S4B. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. So you go and you're you're coaching at the quarterbacks, and then you you were also a recruiting coach, right? Yeah. 
What is the hardest part about recruiting um, high schools in college football? Because I, I think that was my thing. I never wanted to be a college coach because of the recruiting aspect. I felt like it would take so much of my time. Oh, it does. Now, you know, if you look at the way college football programs are organized now, you know, they've got uh, so many interns and assistants and their whole recruiting operation you know, for nine years, our recruiting operation was me, and I had a staff assistant and maybe a GA that would help me out with it, organizing everything. Now there's, you know, 20, 30 people working on it. So they're not working as much as they used to. But, you know, it, it, the, you go into high schools, and now you've got to try and get to know what makes this kid tick, what is going to be the deciding factor. Is this kid a fit for our school? Um, does he really want to go to class? There's so many factors and it's a, it's a constant challenge. And when you talk about college football, if you're going to sign 22, 23 kids in a class. Um, sometimes you're starting out with, uh, there might be three, 400 kids when you right. first start that you're interested in. And, you know, yeah, there's a great wide receiver in California and everybody in the world's chasing, but is this kid really going to go away from home? Does he want to come out and play football in Pennsylvania? And are we overlooking a kid in, you know, in Western PA while we're chasing a kid in Florida? And, you know, we used to have that fight all the time. In fact, you know, every once in a while, uh, my dad would even come in and say, when you, when you were playing Gus, he goes, oh, yeah, there's Gus from Western PA. How do we miss him? Now, I wasn't on the staff at that time. So it's because your, your buddy Bradley wanted me to play linebacker, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't hey, want to do that. You and Jim Kelly. Yeah, and, and Hostetler. <laughs> Kelly Host- was offered the linebacker gig, too. <laughs> yeah, and Hostetler, too, play, right? Played linebacker. Wasn't Jeff Hostetler at Penn State for a little bit, and then he left and went to West Virginia? Yeah, well, you know what happened was in, in the recruiting class when, when Jim Kelly was coming out, Frank Rocco was like the big name out right. there. And they had gotten Blackledge, and they had gotten another guy. And so Jim Kelly was like, well, you got all these quarterbacks. And I think it was J.T. White may have been recruiting at the time. He said, well, you know, Jim, you're a good enough athlete. If quarterback doesn't work out, you could play linebacker. Nobody said you're going to be a linebacker. Right. They just said if it doesn't work out, you can play linebacker. Well, he heard that and went the other way, ran the other way. Uh, which, you know, we, it worked out for him. And Blackledge got us a national championship. It was a first-round pick. And so, I mean, it, really, everybody came out ahead. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, I hear from people all the time about, well, you got to recruit Florida. you got to flu- recruit Georgia. you got to recruit all these places if you want to be successful. And, I, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Ohio State last year, for example, because I'm on the board of trustees at Penn State right now, and one of the trustees said, well, we're not recruiting all these places. I said, uh, 19 of Ohio State starters last year came from Big Ten states. And I said, they're pretty dang good. Right. And couldn't even believe me. I go, look, this kid's from Ohio. I went right down the list. I go, you guys get all caught up in these recruiting guys and say, this guy in Florida is a five-star. And last year, the rookie of the year was Saquon Barkley in the NFL, who went to high school in Pennsylvania. And Don, uh, what's his name? The, the defensive tackle out of the Rams. Uh, Aaron Donald. Uh, Donald. He's an Aliquippa guy. I mean, so there are two of the best players in the entire league that are right here in Pennsylvania. So I said, I don't want to hear that crap. You know, we got good enough, you know, good enough players right here. Yeah, sometimes you miss them when they're right under your nose, right? No question. So what do you, what do you think? I always thought thought about this, like your dad especially. What do you think your dad would say about how football and recruiting goes with social media? Because he probably would just be like, 
I'm not doing that. If you guys want to do it, I could just see him like trying to figure it out. Well, Twitter was starting to hit big when before he was done coaching. And he said, look, I don't know what's going on with that stuff, but are we doing everything we should be doing as an organization? You know, are we out there? Are we doing a good enough job? And he was always very conscious of that. Um, I think the last year, it would have been 2010-11, he, uh, he got his first computer. Not that he was actually running, but he had he had one of those big Apple computers on his desk to do uh, Skype and stuff with recruits. And right. people couldn't believe he did it. He goes, why do you guys think this is such a big deal? It's nothing but teleconferencing. We've been doing teleconferencing for how many years for other stuff? And he said, I said, well, this is free. He goes, well, that's even better. Right. So he so he enjoyed that, but he started doing that with recruits, and he really, you know, he really enjoyed it. But you know, he wasn't going to go on tweet and all that kind of stuff. And and you know, I know one thing that would drive nuts is you know on these recruiting visits now, and it drives me nuts. You know, you see the kids dress up in the uniform and they're posing, and and I say, you know what, you didn't earn that uniform yet. You know that that has always bothered me. That's my one gripe with all this recruiting stuff that you weren't allowed to let kids do that before. Right. And now school does it, and they just turn into it. It's, it's like, you know, when you earn that uniform, then you can put it on. And uh, if I ever get back into coaching, which I may, um, uh, that'll be one of my rules if I'm ever running the program. We're like, hey, you come in here, you want to put in the uniform, good. You commit, you sign, and you come here and you earn that thing. So you got out of coaching in 2011. And um, what are you doing now since you got out? Well, I wrote a book about my, really about my life experience with my dad. Um, I've done some venture capital things uh, for private equity raises. I'm on the board of trustees at Penn State. I do a TV show every week now uh, that's in the eastern part of the state on Penn State. So a lot of different things. Um, I'm working on another book now. In fact, there's two really in the pipeline, but one I'm further ahead on than the other one. Um, so a lot of different things. Um, so you know, it, it's uh, I miss coaching, and and part and part of the last seven years, really seven eight years, has been dealing with some of the fallout of the stuff that happened in 2011 as it relates to our family and my dad and that kind of stuff. So that takes up a good chunk of time too. Uh, Jay, when you're on a board of trustees, what what like what is your task? What is you know when you have a I don't know how often meetings are. Like, what do you guys do? I think a lot of people hear board of trustees and they don't know what what that is. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know. No, um, but I mean, we're really we're really the governing body of the university, so to speak. So when we we approve budgets, tuition, all that kind of stuff, um, as well as oversee the you know, really pretty much everything. And when you look at a school like Penn State, we when you count in our much like Pitt and UPMC with Penn State and our Penn State Health System, um, you're looking at almost a seven billion dollar operation. So there's a lot of things that come with it. Um, so, you know, it's been a great learning experience, but also it's been a way for me to kind of get back involved at Penn State and really have a, have a hand in trying to make sure that we do the right things to the students here. Um, uh, you know, it's, I'm dealing with, you know, you see it with my own kids, you know, the cost of tuition, those kind of things, but also trying to make sure that we oversee the athletics programs here as well so that we continue to do things the right way at Penn State as we've done for so many years. Are your siblings involved with Penn State as well? Well, my uh, my sister uh, Mary works in development at Penn State. She's involved in fundraising, but everybody else is. Uh, I got 
I'm one of five kids. So I have one sister lives in Philly. Uh, another brother lives here. He's not involved with Penn State. And another brother lives down in Hershey. And he's not involved uh, either. But uh, so uh, between my sister and I, and my mom is still very much involved uh, trying to help them raise money for the library and things like that. That's good. Yeah, the philanthropy part is always big. I mean, your your name carries a lot of weight. So uh, just like we're friends with Roberto Clemente Jr., you know, the Clemente yeah. name carries a lot of weight and a lot of people um, really like to see Roberto. Um, and when we had him on our show, he was our first guest we've ever interviewed. He talked about how it took him a long time to realize that, you know, who he was, because when people would see him, they always thought of his dad. Right. right, and I'm sure you get a lot of that as well. Oh, no question. And you know, it's it's, um, and you don't really realize it growing up because you're not old enough to really get your head around it. Right. And um, you know, I had a friend of mine that uh, I went to elementary school with, and he knew my dad's name was Joe, and he knew my dad's name had something to do with he did something with football, and he knew that he was famous, and he thought my dad was Joe Namath. Right. <laughs> And I was like, my mom goes, well, you know, Joe Name is a good looking guy, but I don't think I can handle, I don't think I can handle that as a husband. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you don't really, you, 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 you know, until you step back and are able to kind of see it from a different perspective, it's hard to really understand that, uh, that people look at you that way. And, you know, the sooner you kind of get around that and understand that, um, and the sooner you, you start to do some things on your own, then people start to see you a little differently. And, that, and that's, you know, it's a constant, it's, it's a constant thing that you get all the time. Well, it's, you have to, you're probably constantly, at, at least at the beginning, trying to prove yourself that I'm not here because of, of my dad. Right. I'm sure there's something to do with it, but you, you're worthy of whatever position you're in, right. let, let alone your last name. You know? Well, you know, when I first came back to Penn State, um, one of the other assistant coaches said to me, he said, you know, Jay, just, just remember, he said, and this guy's been a close friend previous to that. He said, um, you know, um, you're going to have to be twice as good as anybody else because the public perception and even perception of some guys within here is going to be, you're only here because your dad. So, you know, you understand that good enough isn't necessarily going to be good enough for some of these people. You got to go above and beyond. And, and I tried to carry myself that way. It was great advice. Um, you know, uh, I learned a lesson very early on, you know, we had winter workouts. I got, I got hired. I think it was in February of 95 and we had those 6am workouts and I went out to coach and I had sweatpants on and my dad calls me over and says, Hey, I don't ever want to see you out there in the practice field with sweatpants again. You put on a pair of pants, you know, you're just a professional environment. And I went, okay. And I looked around and there were like three other coaches in sweatpants. I'm like, I didn't say anything to them about it. You know? <laughs> but, but you know what? Never wore sweatpants to a 6 a.m. workout. No, no, now, if it was preseason camp, we could get away with shorts. But right. no sweatpants. And, but I never wore sweatpants on a practice field ever again. Oh, yeah. You don't, you don't want your dad coming down on you. I, I, no, I, absolutely not. And, and, you know, the other thing, too, that was funny is uh, Bill Kenny uh, was our offensive line coach for the entire time I was there. And Bill said, he goes, just remember, Jay, he said, sometimes you may not have done something wrong, but your dad knows you can handle him yelling at you. So he'll yell at you about something somebody else did or other guys in the staff were doing too, just so they'll hear it. And then they'll stop doing it. And I said, oh, okay, I got you. I go, I don't necessarily like that, but yeah, I got you. 
Yeah, I always had that too. Like uh, the coach was going to yell at me because he likes you the best and he knows you can take it. I'm like, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. Like, you know, when no. he's chewing on my ear and nobody else getting chewed on. Well, I don't think my dad liked me best, but I think he just felt like <laughs> <laughs> felt like felt like I could deal with it. You know, and, and you know, we, you know, my dad he loved to argue. I mean, it didn't matter. He every night at dinner, we would end up. You know, we always ate the whole family, all five kids. My mom and dad, it was going to be family dinner. If my dad didn't get home off the practice field till 6.30, we ate at 6.45, 7 o'clock when he got home. And, but at the end of dinner, he would always, towards the end of dinner, he'd always start some discussion or argument. And it would just be, you know, arguing or dishes are getting clear to people would be arguing. And so when I got to Penn State, you know, we'd get in these coaches' meetings, and you know how those go. I mean, yeah. one coach wants to run this play, another coach wants to block it that way, another guy wants to do this. And we get these arguments, and I would just keep arguing. People were like, you know, what is with you two? You guys just love to argue. I said, that's what we do. Um, but there were certain coaches that didn't. But um, so it did get definitely carried over to the coaching part of it. Well, that's kind of like it goes back to where you get it all out at the table, and then you forget about it, right? You leave the table, you forget about it, you don't carry it on with you through the rest of the night or the next day. And I mean, that's oh, kind of to me what arguing is all about with your family. You get it all out, speak your piece. And there's, you know, there's nothing left. Absolutely. So what was your dad more of a, on the offensive side, defensive side? I always wondered that because I didn't really know that about him. Um, you know, or was he like kind of one of the guys that just kind of oversaw it all, let his coordinators work? All, all of the above. I mean, he really was. I mean, you know, in 68, 69, I think all the way up to like 71 or 72, he called every offensive and defensive snap in games. Wow. As a head coach. I mean, which, you know, I, I look at that now and I go, how in God's name? Yeah, how do you do that? I, he just did it. And, you know, he started out, people always thought he was more of an offensive guy in terms of what he was involved in. But he started out really, I think it was the summer between 66 and 67. He went and spent the whole summer really kind of redesigning things that they did on defense. And then, you know, obviously had some really good, you know, great players came along like Mike Reed and Jack Ham and some guys like that, which, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily X's nose or it's just had some great players. Right. But it really reshaped some of the things they did defensively. And then, you know, then got more involved in offense. But he was a guy that knew both sides of the ball. Um, you know, Saban's like that right now. I mean, Saban is a guy that if his, if his defensive line coach – got lost on his way to practice, saving me go coach the D-line for that practice right. uh, or the offense. And my dad's that way. He's that way. And he was all over the practice field. You know, when we went out in the practice field, you know, he would kind of let us do our thing, but he would come in and say, hey, why aren't you telling him to do that? Or, hey, why is he reading it that way? Hey, didn't we talk? You know, but he wouldn't really second-guess you in front of the players, but he would make notes. And he'd come in uh, after practice and say, hey, to Tom Bradley, hey, why is the corner playing that post route that way? And he would say to Bill Kenny, why is the guard, you know, what call is the guard making when they when they jump that guy into a three technique? Uh, are we going to bring the tackle down and pull the guard? All, he knew all those those ins and outs. And, of course, the game, same way. And he'd jump into a game and say, hey, he would let us, you know, call the game. But we would, you know, Monday night I'd put the game plan in his mailbox or even fax it to him. He still had a fax machine back then. Um and then he would come in Tuesday and say, hey, on third and three to six, you got too much. Third and eight, I like this. Hey, on your, you know, have we thought about this play, that play? Hey, you got too many things here. And they'd go to defense and say, hey, when they're running that zone play, how are we going to stunt? So he was involved in everything. 
And then once the game started, he'd let you call the game, but he would jump in and say, hey, that slant's sitting there, or hey, the backside end is chasing. We got to run that, that, that bootleg off that. Or he'd say, hey, Tom, that guy can't cover this guy. Um, I remember one time we were playing Indiana, and Indiana had a really good defensive end, this guy named Rasmus, Rasmussen. And we basically said at halftime, look, we're not going to run a Rasmussen anymore because our tackle can't handle it. You know, so we were running left, running left, running left. And one time, play comes in, we're on the wrong hash, and we run it right. And Rasmussen makes a play from minus three. And Joe comes running down. He's like, I told you guys, we're not going to run at Rasputin ever again. <laughs> so Rasputin gets the game. I think he was a, you know, he was. You know, short bearded guy said, "Well, if Rasputin gets in the game, we'll be able, we'll run at him." But Rasputin, we won't, because you know what I meant. Uh, I mean, he was he was very much in touch with that stuff and, and, and flow of the game, and probably saw him. I can't tell how many times Bill Kenny would say, "Hey, your dad came down and said the guard missed that," and this, and Bill would say he didn't miss it. And then we look at the film, and Bill would say, or Dick Anderson would say, "Well, doggone it, he was right. It was the guard in that play," and he would see that from the sideline. You know, the sideline's one of the worst seats in the house, right? Yeah, that, that, that's pretty interesting. So what is the one, like, if you get back into coaching, what's the one thing that you've learned from your father that you always think of when you, when you, when you go into coaching? What was that one lesson that he taught you that you take with you? Well, I think one of the most important things, and it's easy to forget as a coach sometimes, you know, we would sit there and draw, hey, we'll run this play or run that player. If they do this, we'll do that. We, they do this. And you do it on the back end of your chalkboard. Um, and there were two things he said, number one, you got to get the chalk last and basically always try and anticipate a step or two ahead of what the other guy's going to do. So, Hey, we're great running the sweep play. What are they going to do to take that away? And then what are we going to do to hurt them when they take that away? And then he would also say, look guys, all that stuff looks good on the blackboard, but it's not what we know. It's what they know. Can they handle all this stuff? And he would always cut us back. And say, so I'd rather be great at fewer things than pretty good at a lot of things. And I think so many coaches get caught up in that where, hey, we want to be in spread, but we want to do this and we want to do that. And uh, we're going to stand at the line of scrimmage and we're going we're gonna to make our call and then let them adjust. And then we're going to make our call. And, they're gonna do- and, you know, sometimes we overcomplicate the game um, to where guys can't play fast. So those two things really was, you know, you want to put your kids in position to play as fast as they can. And you, as a coach, got to anticipate two or three steps ahead of the other guy. Right. Have you yourself thought about being a head coach? Yeah, I mean, you know, it got to the point where um, I thought about leaving Penn State, but I, you know, I did not want to be somewhere else when my dad finally finished his career. Right. Um, so I kind of made it, you know, would have been better had I left a couple of years earlier. You know, in 2008, we had a great offensive football team. I had some people call about, hey, would you think about leaving? Because we had really done some really good things. And I just, you know, I just don't feel like I want to leave. And if I were coaching somewhere else and he was walking off the field last time, I don't know if I would have been able to live with myself, you know, just to not be part of that. Um, But, you know, so I wouldn't trade those memories I have and those times I had with him for anything. So obviously if I get back into coaching and work my way up, I'd love to be head coach because I really think that one of the good things about being away from the game is I really appreciate what I had. And also, have it's given me some perspective to look back on some things and, and evaluate where I was and where I could go. Valet, stay, and play on your next getaway to Los Angeles. The Weston Bonaventure Hotel and Suites offers effortless access to all the City of Angels has to offer. 
Whether you're hoping to catch a concert or sporting event, our hotel is just moments away from all the action and accessible to Hollywood, beaches, museums, and theme parks. The package includes a guest room and valet parking. For reservations, use promo code PSF in the code box when making your online reservation or call 1-213-624-1000 and ask for promo code PSF. Right, so... Yeah, I can't imagine the change you've seen in Penn State from the time you were little till now. And yeah. How, how, like, the stadium and all, everything around it and, and just explain a little bit, like, that progression of Penn State, you being such a part of it for so many years. Well, I think the first year I had season tickets, I was uh, four going on five. Capaletti was the tailback. And um, I went with my brothers and sisters, and we sat in the end zone bleachers because the end zone was open. Right. And it was four or five bucks. I think it was four bucks a game. And my mom let me go because I was the one kid that would actually sit down and watch a game start to finish even then. Um, and so, you know, I remember that. And they closed it in, but then, then there used to be a kid section. It was six bucks a game. And the stadium went from 60,000 to 77, then it went to 85,000, then it went to 90 some thousand, now it's 107,000. And, you know, six bucks doesn't even get you a hot dog anymore. I mean, right. you know, get you a bottle of water, I think. Um, so obviously that part has changed. I think the TV coverage has changed, um, and so much around it has changed. Um, and some of it for good, some of it not for, not for the better. Some, you know, I think the game in some ways, the money's gotten so big. And obviously, there's going to be big changes in terms of NCA with student athletes and what they can what they can make and what they can do, um, which is a whole other. You could do eight shows on what that could entail. Right. Um, but I think you know, just seeing it changed and, and it's been really a, a lot of fun. I think the tailgating has re- remained consistent, though. It's one of the best places. To, oh, it's got to be top outside five the stadium. The unbelievable. Yeah, I mean that's. That's the neat thing is is now not coaching. I now know why everybody loves tailgating so much. Although I don't know, you know, when they're night games, friends of mine are like, yeah, we're going up at nine a.m. and I'm like, what do you do for nine and a half hours? Twelve hours till kickoff. You're up at nine a.m. Kickoffs at eight. Like, oh, we play cornhole, we play stump. I mean, they, they got games, they got league. I mean, it's like holy cow! Like, I had no idea any of this was going on while I was coaching. No, people have recliners and couches. Oh, and everything. Well, I mean, they it's, bring their RVs. They yeah. just go sleep in bed for another two oh, yeah. hours, take a nap, and go back out. Fold out dance floors and stuff. It's when I was a kid, and I used to go up with my uncle Paul when we go watch Mitch play and played with Shane Conlon, all those guys, and and uh, we used to park right by the locker rooms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's all changed kind of now from back in the early '80s. But uh, yeah, we would park there. That's where we tailgate, like. Right where the players would come out. I think they used to get on a bus to go to the stadium. Yep. And then um, they would come out. And I can remember being a little kid, high-fiving them all. And, and my all my uncles, they'd make Penn State. My dad was one of 15 kids. So, my, <laughs> And my Uncle Paul was this guy. He didn't care if it said no entry, players only. He was going in there. I, and I, I used to take him to all my uh, training camps from the NFL. And inevitably, during practice, I'm out in the middle taking a snap, and I'd see my dad or my uncles talking to a coach on the field. I'm like, how the hell did they get out of here? They just, you know, out of nowhere, they just came Act out. Act like you belong. <laughs> That's what they did. But I can't always remember. But they did the same thing up there. We'd be in the weight room. We'd be in the locker room. They didn't care. We were everywhere. 
It was so much fun. Yeah, and you know, now, you know, with everything being so controlled and so much, secure, you know, especially since, obviously, since 9-11, some of the other things, security now, um, it was a different time. And in some ways, it was a lot better because there was better access. Um, you know, you could be around the team and kids, you know, everything is so scripted now. Whereas back then, you know, like you said, you just end up high-fiving guys like Shane Collin and people like that. And, like, yeah. You know, and you still remember that. And, you know, that's, I hope we don't, you know, so there's a love of the game, a connection to the game, that the way things are now, I, you know, and with what it costs to take a family to a game now versus then. You know, you know I hope we don't lose the next generation of fans because of that. Right. Well, Cam was telling us about going up to the – what game was that, Cam? Michigan. The Michigan game. He didn't even, I don't even think you went to the game. You just went to – what bar was that? I was at Pickles all night. Pickles, wherever Pickles is. But he said it was packed the whole game, and like two hundred thousand people come onto campus for a game. It's it's insane. Yeah, there's a lot of people that show up without tickets, and they don't care. They just want to be in. You know, that's the thing. It's gotten to be. It's like a whiteout has become like a bucket list item for college football fans. In fact, one of the things I said to some other people at the university, I said, you know, the stadium is not as loud in that whiteout game as it was ten or fifteen years ago when we first started doing the big whiteout games. He said, "Why didn't get in?" He said, "Tourists." He goes, "What do you mean tourists?" I go, "Because there are people. I can't tell you. I met a guy who's Oklahoma fan. I met Texas fans. I met all these fans from other schools." I said, "What are you doing here?" He goes, "Oh, this is a bucket list for me." And I paid X amount to Airbnb, and I paid him. I mean, so they're not as invested in the game. Yeah, they wear their white stuff, but they're not as invested in the outcome of the game. Whereas ten years ago, when it was all Penn State fans. And I was just listening to Paul Feinbaum's show the other day, and they were talking about, you know, eight years ago when LSU played Alabama when they were one and two, that they estimated there were fifty or 60,000 fans in Tuscaloosa who didn't go to the game. Wow. And, you know, and that's that's happening. It's like, it's you know, they just want to go up and see game day, you know, the ESPN game day, and go be around and tailgate. And, you know, now with satellite TV, a lot of them just sit in the parking lots and watch the game yeah. on TV. So they don't even have to, you know – so they're there. They feel like they're part of it. Yeah, right. I went to LSU. Uh, it was an LSU game in about the maybe 2006 or so, and it, like the guy was saying, our cab driver was like, "It's a hundred thousand in. It's easily a hundred thousand out." And the tailgating, we got there on a Thursday night, and there was about, I'm it's no joke, like fifteen thousand people tailgating on a Thursday night. I mean, it was just, it was the most insane thing, you know. But, oh yeah, I mean, there's just some schools. Yes, yeah. we talked to Dana Falk, who, who. Um, she wrote the whole tailgating on how to cook for tailgating and all that she talked about. I mean, it's just such a big thing every weekend now, you know, especially college is way bigger, I think, than the NFL or anybody else. Yeah. And, you know, there, there are even companies now that contract with schools and they have an area and they'll park a bunch of RVs there. And basically they're hired out to corporate clients or just people with too much more money than cents. And they basically say, you know, just show up at 7 a.m. We've got the RV parked. We've got the location. We've got the food. And you just bring you and your guests, and we do everything. And I'm like, like, that to me is like, that's just wrong. But, you know, but you look at the length some of these people go. I just saw an article about one of the RV areas at Penn State. And these guys had an inflatable hot tub. So this thing, <laughs> they blow this thing up, and they plug it into the generator, and it heats the water. And they got, I'm like, well, where did they get the water? Yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't. It didn't say in the article where they got the water from. 
Which it, is, it might be, be it may be beer. You never know. They wouldn't waste beer by soaking it. So what are some of the big charities you're involved with now, Jay? Well, my mom is very, very involved in Special Olympics. So we do uh, stuff with Special Olympics. We've done stuff with Dance Marathon up at Penn State. Um, and still, obviously, some things for Penn State in terms of raising money for them. Um, but the Special Olympics is a thing. The State Special Olympics is a thing that my mom has been involved with for 30 years. And she does a cruise now every year oh. called Happy Valley Cruise, where I think Franco Harris goes on it. Uh, Lenny, uh, Lydell Mitchell is going to go on a bunch of former Penn State players, Brandon Short, Western PA guy, um, as well as some former coaches and stuff. So she's done that, and she's just, I mean, and she's not one of those people that um, just gets into something lightly. She's in that thing up to her eyeballs, and as a result, she makes us all do it. We do a Beaver Stadium run where it's a 5K that finishes going through the tunnel at the 50 yard line, and, you know several hundred runners it's, it raises four hundred thousand dollars for special olympics every year so a lot of different things that, that we're involved in mostly because my mom really drives the bus on all of us you know hey you're gonna get on this thing and help us and and right. so that's those are the big things we've been involved in. and if you don't she's going to be arguing with you at the table why you should right well hey listen <laughs> as you know you know i mean whether it's your mom or whether it's your wife whatever it is at some point you know you're gonna lose so just in don't fight it. Just say, yeah, okay, Mom, I'll do it. I'll be right, there. Right. Okay, Jay, so one of the last things we do here, we have a lightning round with you. We call it the no huddle or, or two-minute drill, whatever you want to call it. But uh, we fire some questions at you and try to have a little fun. So, Dave, why don't you start? All right, Jay, if you could trade places with anyone in the world for a day, who would that be? And It, it can be any time in history. Oh, my God. Um, I have no idea. Okay. Uh, I would say probably Mick Jagger. Ooh. I would have loved to sing for the Stones for a while. That would have been nice. What's your biggest pet peeve? Uh, biggest pet peeve? Good Lord. People who can't get under center are on a quarterback sneak. <laughs> I think that's most of the NCAA now. Oh, I know. I, well, you know, my son's in ninth grade football. They're never, they're never under center. I'm like, you're in ninth grade. Right. Get under center, damn it. What you, you know what I mean? What's your coach teaching you guys? It's like you can, you know, you can do both. You know, like, it's not that hard. But anyway, yeah. Um, the best pizza at Penn State. Now, our producer, Cam, uh, says Brothers. That's his vote. What's your vote? Brothers, Brothers is around the corner for me. Very, very good. Facciluna is another place. Facciluna. Facciluna right. is really good, too. All right. What is your favorite sports movie? Oh, geez. Favorite sports movie. Um, good Lord. Bull Dorm was on the other night, which is probably – Comedy-wise, that could be right there. Um, I have a soft spot for the movie Hoosiers because my dad took me to see it, as well as Remember the Titans. And the Remember the Titans, we took the whole team to the night before a game. And uh, and my dad was sitting across the aisle from me. So the, probably those ones would be the nice. ones. Um, if you could be the president of the NCAA for a day, uh, what rule change would you make? Oh, geez. Let's see. Um, that is a tough one. I don't know if this would be a lightning answer. I, I, I think right now it would be to – I don't know if it's necessarily a rule change, but I would like to be one of the people overseeing how this whole California legislation stuff is going to get implemented because uh, I don't think anybody in NCAA – you know, I've had this discussion with people at Penn State, and I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago for statecollege.com 
about how to exploit this new loophole. And I don't think they have any idea what's coming because everybody thinks it's going to be, oh, well, there'll only be a handful of players who get endorsement deals. Um, what this is going to end up being is your top running back in the country in 11th grade is going to have an agent. And he's going to want appearance fees set up by the school. And it's not going to be going to be Gatorade. It's going to be just imagine a guy like Tua at Alabama. If he could make appearance money, how many Sweet 16 birthday parties and weddings do you think Alabama alums would hire him at 15, 20 grand a pop to show up at? He might pick up half a million in the summer um, just doing that stuff. So, I mean, I'd like to be involved in the NCAA to make sure that they get this thing right. All right. So, you've seen a lot of. Amazing players, very talented players come through Penn State. If you could pick four, what's your Mount Rushmore of Penn State football players? Oh my God, you're gonna get me killed because it's. <laughs> hey, it's a tough question. Honestly, you're gonna get me killed. Well, um, there's too many to limit to four, but I'll throw four just off top of guys that I coached or played with. Okay, um, Shane Conlon would definitely be on that list. I mean, he was. I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say he's the best linebacker ever play at Penn State because, again, it's too hard to cross genres right. or, or generations. Um, but I never saw anybody better than he was. I mean, he was just he's tough as tough as nails. Mike Robinson, who I coached quarterback, was a guy who was just a tremendous leader and really took a team over. Right. Um, my dad says that we never saw a better football player than Lenny Moore um, going back, you know, when when Saquon Barkley was playing two years ago, somebody said, "Well, you know, he returns kicks and returns punts, and or and he and he catches the ball and he runs with the football." And I said, "Well, Lenny Moore did all that and played every snap of defense in college." And he said, "Oh, I didn't realize that." <laughs> I said, that, "That's true." You know, like, Iron Man. They, they would get ten carries a game. You know, yeah, I mean, why did Lenny Moore only get ten carries a game? Well, why? Because he played, you know, 60, 70 snaps of defense. Right. I'd say Lenny Moore, Shane Conlon, Michael Robinson. I'm forgetting somebody. I know I'm going to get in trouble. But if I limit just to some guys like that, um, oh, God dang. You're killing me now. Because um, I don't say Franco Harris, he'll kill me. Uh, Mike Munchak was one of the great offensive lineman history of the game and obviously gotta have that um jack ham who i'll run into will give kill me if i don't mention him um you gotta you gotta have more than four on that mount rushmore but that's just those are just guys off the top of my head no those are good ones that gives us a good taste though um what's the most underrated aspect of state college or penn state that people may not know about well, I think there's a, you know, everybody thinks right here in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing to do. There's so much going on here. I mean, you, you, you know, you've got a great hockey program now, so you've got hockey games. Um, you've got all kinds of, obviously, the football is part of the sports stuff. But, I mean, the concerts that come through here because we have the Jordan Center now, um, it's a great place to raise kids. Um, so, I mean, I think those are probably things people don't realize about State College. You have all the things you would, you would get in a big city without some of the hassles and the traffic. What is the, the best bar in State College? Because I know they're, for, for, they're known for some pretty good places to go have a cold. <laughs> There's a couple here, yeah. Um, I would say right well, – well, Champs gets – this is Bar Downtown Champs. It gets a lot of press and pub right now. Um, but I would tell you that uh, – I know Cam's probably shaking his head over there because he knows what I'm talking about. Um, but there's a place called Doggies, which used to be the old Rascally. Yeah. And 
the, the people that own it are friends of mine. So if I don't say them, I'll get in trouble. But they've done a great job renovating it. And then they, they built a big outdoor beer garden in the back, which is really, uh, really a unique setup and environment. And in fact, they have a big projection unit now. And when Penn State plays night games, the place is just packed with kids. All of 21, of course. But um, but uh, they've got place packed with and then Steelers, you name it, Eagles, whatever it is. They, so it's a good spot. That's awesome. And that's exactly what Cam predicted. You'd say he said yeah. he said doggies that used to be the uh, Rathskeller. And then the next day, after maybe a long night there, maybe stop at the Waffle Shop. Yeah, Waffle Shop's a good breakfast. And then the corner room has an early bird special, which they just raised it to four dollars and twenty five cents. Oh yeah, they're making a I, killing. It was like, well, it was two ninety five until like uh, two months ago, which killed me. I went, wait, wait, it's four twenty five. You can't raise the price for two eggs, hash browns, and two pieces of toast for two ninety five until just about five months ago. Wow. Um, okay, what about the, the best recruit that got away? Someone that comes to mind and we go, God, I thought we had him, and he ended up going somewhere else. Oh God. Um, it's hard. To, it's hard to guess because you know the minute they commit somewhere else, I'm like the hell with you. <laughs> I'm right. done. Um, you know, I, I think that um, the ones that get away that there, there are ones that got away from us that I really wished we had gotten because I think we may have been able to do a better job for them. And and that's not a criticism of where they went, and and it's not a coincidence both of them went to Ohio State. But I thought Terrell Pryor had he come to Penn State and really kind of sat a year before all that the, the, he, you know and had matured a little bit might have helped him not that he didn't have a bad career he had a great career at Ohio State and, and that kind of stuff but I felt like and then Maurice Claret was another one we really we were we really had him as a sophomore and his junior year when Trestle got the job he committed to Ohio State we thought we we're going to get him and again you know some kids do well in city environments other kids don't um, and I thought our environment would have been better for both of those guys to be here um, where we can keep a little bit better of an eye on him. But again, you know, Terrell had a great career, and that's not to take anything away from what he did at Ohio State. Um, and Maurice Claret, uh, I really feel like we could have helped him out um, in terms of the maturing process, maybe. You know, when he was our, you know, he was a freshman, Ohio State put him in a room with a seasoned ESPN reporter, and he asked him, Do you think you could be a one and done? And he did. He said, Yeah. Whereas we'd have been like, okay, give us a 30 second timeout, get over here. You're not going to answer that question, you know, or don't get into that. And, and you know, that kind of, that kind of took a life of its own. People at Ohio State presented the fact that you know, he did that big ESPN magazine article where he was taking the jersey off and throwing down it. And that wouldn't happen here. And it probably would have helped him a long time. Right, right. Okay, last one, Jay. Uh, if you could go back and tell a younger Jay Paterno one thing, what would that one thing be? Probably just enjoy every minute because, you know, you think that things are going to be forever and you think that, um, you know, you don't realize when you're coaching, you get into that week to week and the games are flying by and the years are flying by. And the next thing you know, you're 35 years old, then you're 40 years old, then you're 45. And you don't realize that you're, you're missing time with your kids. You're missing time with, uh, but you assume it's always going to be that way. And I think one of the best things that's happened to me in the last six, seven years is I have that understanding, appreciation of what how special it really was to be a part of football and coach my dad. Um, and my dad was good. He'd, he'd say to me, just remember, you know, when you're home, be home. Um, right. You know, don't just be there physically, be there, there mentally. And I, I, I was good with it most of the time, but there were times now I'm like, 
my wife would say, don't you remember this? I'm like, no, I don't. And I feel bad about that. But um, that would be some things I, you know, just, just enjoy it. Right. I agree with that. Well, thank you for coming on the huddle with us and sharing your story. Uh, it was great meeting you and uh, we really enjoy it. Hey, we want to thank you for joining us today on Huddle Up with Gus, uh, where we talk to a wide range of guests about how sports shaped your life. As always, I'm joined by my great friend and co-host, Dave Hager, and uh, we want you to be able to follow us on all of our social media, at Huddle Up with Gus, and we really appreciate you and thank you for your time uh, and listening to our podcast.